Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush and I'm joined by my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush to discuss going back to work and why the government wants us to do it and why it's so confusing. And you ask us, does the Captain Hindsight criticism of Keir Starmer put him in danger? So we're recording on Monday and it was last Friday that Boris Johnson first started ramping up the rhetoric about more people going back to work if they can. And he's been reiterating that message today. And there's a huge amount of confusion because while the official guidance that's written down says that if you can still work from home, you should work from home. It seems from ministers that they would rather people started trying to go back to their places of work. And it seems obvious that the reason for this is because although they've had their Super Saturday and they've, they've you know, reopened pubs and shops and restaurants and all sorts of places, that you don't get as much footfall and therefore revenue in these places unless people are actually going into their offices and, the, and to their workplaces again. So what is the actual guidance and why is it so confusing? Stephen, you wrote about this in Morning Call. Yeah, so, so the actual guidance remains that you should work from home if you're able. I think, I mean, I've actually, I'm so self-indulgent on this issue. I've actually, I've actually written another piece on this as well, because I genuinely think that the confusion on this comes back to a policy that people who are particularly attentive to my many terrible and actually quite right-wing opinions will be aware I have views on, which is the incoherence of the recent conservative turn on high streets. This whole, mm. like, we've got to save the high streets. Well, mm. save them from who? Oh, you mean... You mean save them from the the predictable consequences of people's preference for the convenience and lower cost of, of, of online shopping. And of course, the central reason why people are working from home is, and we shouldn't forget that many places moved to working from home before a formal lockdown, yeah. is because businesses decided that their personal preference was to A, avoid liability, B, to avoid sick days, Something everyone seems to have forgotten, I think, because like the tail risk and you'll die of the novel coronavirus is obviously important, but it kind of distracts me from the fact that like to be incredibly selfish about it, right? Like obviously at the moment I only have a, a team of one, but when we went into lockdown, I had a, a team of three people uh, on the politics team. And if I was going to have a situation in which people were going to be ill for two weeks, reinfecting each other, then getting ill in six months... Right. The challenge of effectiveness and, you know, not being with within, you know, threatening distance 
of the people I mm-hmm. married. Uh, I just, I'm kidding. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> we it, should say it, that they left because they had other jobs to go to rather than <laughs> rather anything than, COVID-related. Yeah. yeah no, <laughs> or they're, Stephen they're related, not, hopefully. They're, yeah, they're, they're not, they're not, they're not dead. They've, uh, they've just gone to another place. But, uh, but, uh, but, but in, anyway, right, the, the, the inconvenience of a third of your, myself being ill all the time is actually greater to me than the undoubted inconvenience of people not being nearby. And I think lots of the benefits of being in a shared space are benefits of being able to be, not be having to be a metre apart, right? It's not like you can have a discreet and informal conversation with someone very easily while observing, you know, in a COVID secure workplace. So the business case for not going back is incredibly strong. I think in the long term, if at the end of this crisis, you know, if there is a vaccine, if it goes away, et cetera, et cetera, I think that businesses which have retained the ability to do person-to-person working will have considerable benefits. And I think it's particularly difficult and unfair for people who are at the start of their careers. But I also just think, I ultimately, from a bottom line perspective, of course, people are going to do this. Just as from a bottom line perspective, of course, regrettably, in my view, a lot of people prefer Amazon to a brick and mortar bookstore. And I think like that the thing that this reveals is we have a government which is just incapable of saying to people, look, here is a hard choice for you. Here is a hard message. Because what they desperately want is they want to they they don't want to compel businesses to go back. They don't want to compel people to like start going back out and stimulating, you know, stimulating prets. <laughs> but they would like those things to happen. So you just end up with this kind of like verbal blancmange of people like who are of a government which is kind of too like weak to go we actually just do want you to take this bigger health risk to deal with the economic problem I, and I think that is why they're so confused. I think you also made a good point Stephen that the government is basing sort of basically shifting the burden of liability onto businesses with this move in that if businesses are requiring people to be physically present in the office and they get sick and they have the long-term ramifications of COVID, it would be on the business rather than necessarily on the government unless the government changes its position on this, which I think is quite a good one, as in quite a good point. (laughs) Not a great thing to be happening. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of the bigger thing, I think that it's the very stuff of, of recessions, isn't it? That even if people have the option of returning to work in an office when they could be working from home. It's like what we were talking about last week, that in the wider economic context of huge uncertainty around job losses and what's going to be like really, really bad downturn or like a really, really big economic shock, people want to be saving. And I think that being forced some people have lost their jobs and they aren't in this situation. Lots of people have been going into work the whole time, but for the chunk who haven't lost their jobs and who've been able to work from home especially as you say people at the start of their careers they're suddenly reaping the benefits of like not spending on their commute not spending on on sort of unnecessary purchases which would be the first things to go if you were saving and in the context where you might want to be you know saving for future job losses or you don't know what the future is like there's really like even if you miss your your colleagues or whatever and you have the option of going back in it doesn't seem like anyone would want to take on the economic hit of of suddenly, as you say, like propping up Pret-a-Manger and TFL or whatever it is that people, 
I think in many cases would, would be personally prioritizing their economic security over like doing their bit to help the economy. And that's that's like the fundamental problem with, with all recessions that people want to save when really they could profit the, the economy more by spending, but they rightly don't want to. Definitely. And I think all of this, because, you know, so much of COVID-19 is an exposure of pre-existing problems or an acceleration of pre-existing problems or even not even problems, but patterns. And I think what this this particular debate has exposed about this government is how deeply conservative and uncreative it is for all of its sort of aura of having this kind of maverick at the heart of it and wanting to shake things up and change the way that the economy is run. It really is like, like Stephen said at the beginning of the podcast, it's clinging on to this kind of myth of, of the British high street. You know, the British high street has been dying for a really long time. Last year, it was declared the worst year for retail, for British retail ever. And by trying to get people to go back into their offices, but not really wanting to tell companies to do it, you know, in a mandatory way, they're, they're just sort of clinging on to this idea that the high street can somehow survive when it wasn't before, rather than thinking of a new model for the way that that works. You know, there's long been a problem with the way that it's funded councils and business rates and the, the high rents and, and also just consumer behavior changing with the times. And there's just such a lack of creativity as to how to grapple with that problem which is you know which which could be a huge opportunity for the kind of things that this conservative government is known to want to do which is kind of rejuvenate the towns that that lent them their votes in the last election you know have a different kind of role for town centers have this renewal that that captures people people's imaginations after so long of of seeing their high streets degrade it doesn't show any ambition to do anything different and i think it's the same with working as well working practices going into an office at an arbitrary location every day for office workers you know it has been something that's been declining as as a sort of efficient way to work for quite a while. And so there's all sorts of things that they could be doing to sort of adapt to the times, to the changing sort of face of modern work. But you can just see that it hasn't at all addressed those issues. And all of these things should have been should have been subjects that, that were at the front of a conservative government with the ambitions that it says it has its mind while it was going into the election even, but it clearly hasn't thought about them. And rather than using this sort of break and then the sort of fractures in, in the economy that the pandemic has caused to create something new and to deliver on what it wants, what it says it wants to do by shaking up the old norms, it just it's trying to cling on to the old status quo, which is deeply revealing of this government. Yeah, it is, it is odd how, in some ways, right, what we're talking about is both the revealed pre preferences of businesses and consumers, many of which have gone, actually, we're quite happy working from home, and the revealed preferences, you say, of this government, right? But obviously, as people will know, I am like a massive, like, London supremacist, and I actually find the idea that people would voluntarily choose to leave the city <laughs> painful and revolting to me, right? <laughs> But I kind of have to concede that if what we have shown is that someone can, you know, do a high powered job in London successfully while living in Cornwall or Redditch or another town than I personally. Now, I'm, I'm sure these places are perfectly lovely, but, but <laughs> I, I personally just find the idea of not living in London quite upsetting. But my, my point is, is that this is, as you say, Anoush, surely this is. This is an economic change they should be greeting. Mm. Yes, it's disruptive, but we, we're continually told, you know, this Downing Street loves to brief how much it loves disruption. And like, yeah, the, the second it gets a disruption which moves us in the direction we want, 
that annoys even a couple of people. It's like, oh no, please, please, my high streets, my high streets. It's just like <laughs> it's 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 just a degrading way for a government to behave. Like <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. And, and and also, I think maybe that's, there's a reason for that, which is that the sort of future of high streets can go two ways, they can just fall completely into the lap of property developers and people who want to extract money from from housing in areas that they otherwise have no interest in putting any value into other than big shiny buildings that exclude certain people. Or they can go in the other direction, which is to sort of be spaces for entertainment, leisure, sort of community, community activities, public space, those kind of forums that, as we've been writing about at the New Statesman, have been disappearing from, from local communities for quite some time. And if it, if it was to go in the latter direction, you know, I suppose that would be a slight <laughs> reversal of the capitalist norm that we have that kind of props up the way that our high streets and town centres work. We had a guy called Bill Grimsey who used to run Wicks and Iceland back in the day write for us about this and he said really the future for our town centres are are in in activities in in those kind of services that are that are events and sort of people driven rather than just retail shopping and restaurants. And, you know, I, I think maybe that's a bit of a threat to a conservative government. It's so interesting as well, because I think like the other side of that coin is the sort of the what what Stephen was kind of hinting at, the, the leveling up potential of what might happen if you suddenly lean into this trend of working from home rather than away from it. Because as you were saying, suddenly this in some ways democratizes access to to high paid work and doesn't centralize it in London in the same way. Like I've been very struck over the pandemic by the way the second people had the option to work from home, people of my own age in their mid 20s, obviously most of the people I know like live and work in London and the second the pandemic hit, they all spread out across the UK again to their hometowns and have been based there while still doing their in theory London based jobs. And if that was, in theory, something more sustainable, it would really radically shake shake up the way certain firms recruited. And suddenly, rather than having this huge brain drain from certain towns that don't have the work to pay graduates or can't retain their young people, suddenly those young people could be based in their in their hometowns again. And I don't know if the government has looked into this in a serious way, but maybe looking at like the long-term modelling of what might happen if you had more home working for these kinds of roles and the knock-on effect that that would have, not necessarily on town centres, but on towns as a whole and the sort of levelling up the, the economic productivity of the UK. I mean, I'm sure quite quickly it would mean that people based in big cities on big city salaries wouldn't necessarily receive that same salary to work from home because it wouldn't be sort of adjusted for London rates or whatever. But I think I just think it, it would be really interesting. And that's clearly a preference that lots of people have been demonstrating. And the government isn't really going to affect lasting change or do anything very meaningful just by trying to, to go against the grain of the trend. I think um, in terms of like, and both what you just said, which I think is completely true, even though to emphasise that, I think it's a terrible and, and in many ways depraved decision than those young people are taking. <laughs> um, but I think Anusha's point about how it's like 
in some ways it moves you in quite an anti-conservative direction. I think what it reveals is an interesting trait of this kind of flavour of British populism, which is that, like, bluntly, Dom Cummings lives 15 minutes walk from where I am. Other people in Downing Street go to, like, the same nice butchers and delis or whatever. Right, these people love, love the urban elite. They just also like Brexit. And I think, actually, like it is like this revealed preference of, oh, but what does that mean for the things I like about my place than I live if I can't effectively force a bunch of young people to come to live here who'd rather not? And, and so the kind of policy choice becomes, how can we like pull against the grain of what people want rather than go with it? And I'm really sympathetic with wanting to pull against the grain of it. But, you know, for the same reason that I don't like then it's becoming harder for me to buy dvds or whatever but like it doesn't mean that it's like a government doesn't mean that that's a thing that a government can actually do unless it's willing to actively prohibit people from distance working which i genuinely think is what you'd probably have to do in a lot of a lot of cases definitely and and one other disincentive would probably be that you really have to make housing more secure for far more people if you're going to if you're going to go with the trend of people preferring to work from home lots of people who have had to work from home in this period are in less than ideal housing scenarios and that's with the kind of measures that the government put in place to avoid evictions and things like that under the during the pandemic so it would mean probably quite a lot of reforms to the private rental sector that again run against Conserv- well, traditional conservative values, but this government, you know, is supposed to be different. It, uh, it is really interesting just how much I think it has exactly, as you say, revealed that this government is not actually at all different from what has gone before, other than actually weirdly that it's more squeamish about the operation of free markets. Like mm-hmm. this is just people's preferences causing economic disruption. And in many ways, the correct and classic free market response is well, you just need to bail out individuals so they don't face destitution. Instead of going, maybe we can give a voucher so that people can think very hard about their revealed preference, decide they're wrong, and and change their mind. Mm. I mean, it's probably worth saying that people's revealed preference probably isn't entirely homeworking, in that normally at some point in in discussions about this, people do mention the value of, of contact with colleagues and the sort of creative potential of those spontaneous social interactions and then just like the much wider benefits of having there was a really good piece in the guardian at the weekend on this i can't remember the phrase but like about how psychologists have for a long time talked about the benefit of sort of unimportant peripheral social contacts that as well as having people in your life who you're very close to that there's a huge psychological benefit to having lower level friendly interactions with strangers or acquaintances or or colleagues who you don't know very well so I think maybe people's preference will be just for greater flexibility and you know maybe just some people seeing their colleagues you know once or twice a month there you know there there are so many features and there's really interesting journalism on this I think mainly because journalists often work in offices so they're they're more interested in this than in other types of work but, you know, there, there are stories of, of workplaces where they got rid of their physical workplace and just the workers meet in a hotel for a meeting about once a month. I think maybe some people would want more flexible working. But even within that qualification, I think it, it's just absolutely true that the pandemic has, has accelerated a, a trend that I think we would have seen anyway of people moving towards home working. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. (laughs) 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. So we've got a great question today, which is well-timed because Keir Starmer has hit his first 100 days in office. So this question is, in PMQs, Boris Johnson chided Keir Starmer for being Captain Hindsight. Um, and that was specifically over the issue of asymptomatic transmission of COVID-19. Now, our questioner, Phil Lewis, says, given that I was aware in March that it could be spread by people displaying no symptoms, how does Johnson get away with with that kind of slight on Keir Starmer? And what did you think when you heard that when you were watching PMQs, Alva? Oh, so I think this is, this is such a good question and, and such an interesting one, because I, I don't think that that's an isolated incident of someone of Boris Johnson saying something questionable at PMQs and not really being picked up on it sufficiently. Because, I mean, almost immediately, people, including our, our good colleague Patrick Maguire, now departed for the time. We need to stop, we need to stop, on, <laughs> stop mentioning him in every section of the podcast. But, you know, even before PMQs had finished, he and other journalists were sharing minutes of, of SAGE from January which in- indicated that there was insufficient evidence, but the early indicators were that asymptomatic transmission was happening. And then anecdotally, as, as the questioner says, everyone was aware of the possibility of asymptomatic transmission. And also more broadly in the context of the question that Boris Johnson was answering, that was a completely inadequate answer to the question because the basis on which they hadn't changed the guidance in care homes or the basis of the guidance on care homes was that there was no community transmission mm. and the implication was that as, as soon as there was community transmission the, the guidance would change and then there was a huge delay in actually changing the guidance it had nothing to do with asymptomatic transmission or not so it's like disingenuous and possibly false on multiple scores and I think it's I don't really know is my honest answer for why that one hasn't been picked up on enough. I think my instinct is that for Labour, for example, it doesn't matter at the moment because Boris Johnson cannot get away with an argument like that in the longer term because it's so patently inadequate for explaining what happened around care homes that like the issue of, of the scientific guidance on asymptomatic transmission really has nothing to do with the adequate testing or PPE, the policy in care homes, the government policy, how quick that was. So I think maybe there, you know, the feeling is that that will be looked at in an inquiry. And so there's no need to look at it now. But in general, Boris Johnson says things like that really every time at PMQs. And I think it's it makes it a challenge covering it to do the sort of the quick take on PMQs. Because, for example, he said that in the context of the Leicester lockdown, Keir Starmer was, you know, there armed with his armed with his facts and, and just off the phone with the mayor of Leicester. And he was pointing out that local authorities in Leicester hadn't received the Pillar 2 data, so the information on community transmission or like information from community testing. 
until the Thursday before PMQs, which was really, really late and, and hadn't enabled local services to act quickly enough. And I kept them out of the loop. And Boris Johnson said that that was untrue. And I think the challenge as a journalist is you think, well, I don't know on what basis he is saying it's untrue. You can see it in black and white on Twitter, on the mayor of Leicester's official Twitter, him confirming they didn't get that information until the Thursday, which is what Keir Starmer said. And it's basically always the case that you can find the facts online really quickly that Keir Starmer has cited, but you can't really prove an inaccuracy or or a falsehood on Boris Johnson's part because you think well maybe the mayor didn't have it but some other local authorities had it so this uh, this happens really like every week with him and it's something I plan on writing about in the coming week because it's not the only trend of Boris Johnson's performance in PMQs but I think it is a really interesting one that these things they didn't escape the notice of of the questioner or actually of quite a lot of people in the case of the asymptomatic one but just in general he's able to say that things aren't true or that he doesn't agree and there's kind of no serious consequence for him I don't know what what do the two of you think about it? My one concern for Keir Starmer with this kind of captain hindsight, well, you know, none of us knew about X, Y, and Z, you know, confusing science, insert confusing scientific thing here that mm. doesn't boil down into a soundbite, is that a lot of frontline people who you interview have who have been extremely angry about the situation that they've they've been in and and have been through traumatic times will always say well you know I can't really blame the government because no one knew that this would happen you know there is there is a certain level of understanding and it's dwindling but there is a certain level of benefit of the doubt given to the government because this is you know such an unknown quantity we've never been through a time like this before in our generation so I do wonder if the captain hindsight type of criticisms of Keir Starmer might might be something that they've polled. You know, Alva, you had your your scoop about the fact that every pretty much every day they're getting public polling in, telling them how the public think. Mm. I think that probably chimes with how quite a lot of people who, yes, they're not particularly impressed with the government's performance, but they're still they still see it from this sort of human, compassionate stance. They probably feel that, you know, well, who is this critic to say that the government did everything wrong from the start when no one knew what they were doing. Stephen, do you think that's that's an area of vulnerability for, for Keir Starmer? Yeah, well, I think one of the really interesting vulnerabilities about... So he's had a, a successful first 100 days in that people have been introduced to him and they broadly like what they see. But the thing that they've liked about what they've seen is that he has been constructive or he's performed being constructive. You can argue about whether or not he actually has been constructive or if he's simply tried to like lay traps for the government in a kind of more subtle way. But the difficulty is, is I think it means that it, it's very hard to then move from here I am being instructive to being on the attack. Because I think people have a really strong cognitive bias towards the idea that the government is competent, because the alternative is quite terrifying, right? And so any kind of thing which allows you to go, oh, yeah, it is quite difficult, or well, it is true to say that the Health and Social Care Act is a bit of a mess. It's, it's really kind of, it's really seductive because it means that you don't lie awake at night going, oh God, the people in charge of the health response and the economic response are going to take us over the cliff on the 31st of December as well. And I'm going to mm. you know, have to live out of a cardboard box, right? And I think that Keir Starmer does have a bit of a vulnerability to that type of argument because I can't work out how, 
Like, what is the way you go from, I'm a reasonable guy who just wants to be constructive to going, mm, but that wasn't hindsight, was it? That was just a lie. And also the, the other kind of structural PMQs thing, and one of the reasons why when I became Polid, I, I got rid of us going, yeah, who won, who lost, is that if the prime minister is halfway, I mean, not even halfway competent, but like if you, if you are a prime minister who can walk and chew gun at the same time, you really ought to always draw or win PMQs because you have the last word. You have the sixth answer. The sixth answer doesn't have to be fair or truthful or it, it can be easily rebuttable, right? Yeah, but you get the final TV clip anyway. And his willingness to play fast and loose with established truths is a major asset given the format of PMQs. I think you're right. I think it, it is a, a vulnerability in the Starmer project. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. Our producer is Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.